Well, if you would remain standing, we've come now to the second week in our series on prayer, and it's our hope and expectation through this series that God might use His Word to ignite in you, to ignite in us a greater passion to seek Him in prayer. And so we've come to the second part here of Jesus' teaching on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we talked about what Jesus said about when you pray, and today we're going to talk about what he says about how we pray. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9, going through verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. It should be up on your screen as well. This is Jesus speaking. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You may sit down, and let's come to him now in prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you as needy children, as those who need your word to survive. Your word is our food, our spiritual food. Please nourish us as we come to it now. Help us to know what it means to pray in a way that would honor you. We know that only you could do this in our hearts, and so we pray for that by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what do you say when you're in the presence of greatness? Some years ago, I had to wrestle with this question when I was in college, when I had the chance to meet my childhood hero, Michael Jordan. It's hard to underestimate how big of a fan of Michael Jordan I was at this time. Like most kids growing up in Chicagoland, I had watched all of his highlight tapes. Well, I shouldn't say most kids in Chicagoland did that. I had watched all of his highlight tapes. I watched all of his games. I even watched the post-game interviews and tried to interview and tried to emulate what Michael would do and say. I knew about his likes, his dislikes, his birthday. I knew all about him. I had posters of him up in my room. And so when the, uh, the opportunity came, when I worked at his basketball camp when I was in college, I was thrilled. The security guards let me in, and I went up the stairs. And before I knew it, I was face to face with my hero. And at that moment, I realized, I don't know what to say to him. I knew everything about him, but I realized I didn't really know him. What do you say to someone like that? Hey, I've got all your posters up in my room and I look at them every night before I go to bed. It's a little creepy. So I froze, I didn't know what to say. I, I went up to him and I said something like, nice to meet you, <laughs> and then I walked away. It was very anti climactic. Well, if we're honest, 
when it comes to knowing the most famous, the greatest being in the entire universe, many times we're like me when I went to meet with Michael Jordan. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to say to this holy God when we come to him in prayer. And in our passage today, the good news is that Jesus gives us the answer. He tells us how to pray to our heavenly Father. Now, if you weren't here last week, you'll want to remember that Jesus has just finished teaching about how not to pray. You shouldn't pray, he says, like the hypocrites who want to be heard and seen by others. You shouldn't pray like that. Instead, you should go into your room and pray secretly to your Father in heaven. But when you're there, you shouldn't pray empty, mindless prayers, he said, not like the Gentiles do. Instead, he says, you should pray like this. And he proceeds to give them what we now call the Lord's Prayer. And that leads us to the overarching point of this passage, and it's this. If you're a note taker, you'll probably want to take this down. It's not hard to remember, though. The overarching point of this passage is this. Our prayer must align with the Lord's prayer. Our prayer must align with the Lord's prayer. Now, if that seems like a simple concept, it's because it is. You see, Jesus and God here, are, they're not trying to hide themselves from you. God is not trying to make you guess how he wants you to address him. He spells it out for us here. And so he gives us this prayer, and Jesus, as he gives this model prayer, uh, he gives us all that we need. The late British pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly said about this prayer, it's a perfect synopsis of our Lord's instruction on how to pray and what to pray for. One way to think about it is it's God's love letter to you. He's telling you how to build a relationship with him. If Sarah were to send me a letter or to tell me, this is how I want you to love me, I wouldn't discard it. I wouldn't just set it aside. I would memorize it. I would do whatever it is in that letter so I could love her better. Well, that's what God has done for us here. He's given us this love letter. He said, this is what I want you to pray about. This is how you should pray. It's a template that he has given us that he wants us to use when we come to him. So we must understand what it says. and We must put it into practice. So the prayer could be broken down into six petitions. We have three petitions that are focused exclusively on God, who he is, his glory, and his will being done, his kingdom coming. And then we have three petitions that focus more on ourselves, our own needs, and the needs of those around us. And in those two categories come two main commands flowing out of the text today. And here they are. Two commands. When we think about praying, we should think about these two things. First, speak up. Speak up to God. And second, speak out. Both out of who we are and out in what's uh, in the needs of others around us. So let's consider this po first point, to speak up. You see, our natural inclination in prayer, like most conversation, if we're honest, is to speak about ourselves. To speak about ourselves, but that's not how Jesus wants us to begin our prayers. 
Instead, he calls us to speak up, to focus first upon God and not on ourselves. So let's look at the first four words of the prayer. They're very instructive. It says, our Father in heaven. Jesus is telling us here how to address God in a way that reminds us of his identity and then our identity. Notice that Jesus does not tell us to pray my Father in heaven, but our Father in heaven. So what does this mean? It means when you're praying alone, which Jesus has just commanded us to do, we're not to pray as if it's just us and God alone, that those are the only needs before our mind. We're to think of others because we're part of a community. Jesus assumes that we as followers will be in this Christian community, the church, the local church, and part of the global church. And so this communal aspect of prayer, this our language, it also implies that you should not only pray alone. We talked a lot about praying alone last week, but this prayer assumes that you will be praying with others. That's what we're seeking to do at 6 p.m. tonight as we pray as a church, as, a, as we have this a corporate prayer meeting. So he says, our. He begins with our. Next, he says, Father. To pray our Father suggests that those of us who are praying are his children. Now, a lot of people assume that if I'm a human being, I'm a child of God. And on one level, that's true. Acts 17 affirms that. There's some other things that, other passages of Scripture that may affirm that the, the fatherhood of God generally but contrary to popular belief, we are not naturally born into God's family, as he's explaining it here. No, we must be born again. We must be adopted. The Apostle John explains how this adoption happens in his first chapter of his gospel. He says in verse 12, To all who believed in his name, in the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. So that means if we want to address God as our Father, we must first have a relationship with His Son. It means that we must believe in Jesus. He must be our Savior and Lord. So before we go any further, if you're here today and you're not a child of God, if you don't know Jesus, you don't have to stand on the outside looking in. We are so glad you're here. We're glad that you want to learn about Jesus. Or maybe someone just brought you here, and that's why, why you're here. Whatever reason you're here for, we're glad you're here. But today, you can enter the family of God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, by believing that he died for you, he rose from the dead, and that he will forgive your sins if you trust him as Savior and Lord. Well, most of us are, uh, who are here, I assume, are adopted children of God. And as we come to him in prayer, Jesus wants us to remember our identity. He wants us to remember that we can come to him in freedom as a son, as a daughter. He wants us to remember we don't have to access, we don't access him because of our own effort, our own intellect, our own godliness, or any other reason like our own merit or anything like that. We have access because Jesus paid the price of our adoption. Jesus brought us into his family. That's what we need to remember when we come to the Lord in prayer. 
And then we come to the final two opening words of the address, in heaven. So while our Father refers to the position that we have before God, that we have been adopted in his family, that we are in an intimate relationship with the the holy God, in heaven tells us that we are in relationship with the one who is sovereign of all things, who is the creator of all, that he is the holy one. So we need to hold these two things in balance, in tension. We can't forget that the one we get to call Father is also the ruler of the universe. This should lead us to reverence and awe when we go to pray. Jesus himself prayed in this way. The author of Hebrews tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears, and he was heard. Why? Because of his reverence. So maybe you need to be reminded today that God wants you to come to him, yes, as Father, but in reverence and awe. So we pray, our Father in heaven, as redeemed children of God, part of a community of believers, knowing that our position in the family has been secured by Jesus as we come to the one who is sovereign and rules over all. And so now we come to these three petitions contained in that first command that we're calling speak up, that we want to set our attention upward to God. First, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name is a prayer for God's name to be seen as holy. You remember in scripture, one's name represents somebody's character, all of his attributes. So if you think about all the attributes of God, he is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, he is all-present, he is perfectly holy, he is perfectly wise, he is full of goodness and gentleness and kindness and wrath and mercy, all of it. We are praying that God, as he is, might be known in this earth in that way. We are praying that God, his fame and his name, would be worshipped rightly throughout all of creation. The second petition is your kingdom come. Remember when Jesus began his earthly ministry in Matthew, what did he say? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in a very real sense, when Jesus came to earth the first time, the kingdom of heaven broke in broke into earth. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we are expressing a desire for this message of salvation through Jesus Christ to spread throughout the world. It's also a prayer that looks to the future. It's a prayer for Jesus' return when his kingdom will come fully and finally, where he will reign on this earth. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying for the spread of the gospel and we're praying that he would come back. Well, the implication for us personally is that when we pray your kingdom come, we are acknowledging a commitment to spread this message ourselves and to live as if the Lord could return in any moment. If we're going to pray that with authenticity, that's going to be the commitment of our hearts. Well, then we come to the third petition in this speak up section, and it's your will be done. This is a reference for God's revealed will as contained in his word 
to be done on the earth, to be carried out. It's a prayer for his word to be followed and obeyed in our world. And if we look around, we don't have to look very far to see that many times that is not the case. If we look even in the mirror, we'll realize many times that is not the case. So implicit in this portion of the prayer is that the fact that we must be people seeking to know and apply God's word because we can't pray about his will being done if we don't know what that will is. See, prayer and the word go together like hand and glove. They can't be separated. Well, there's another aspect of this prayer of your will be done. It's also a prayer of trust. Tim Keller points this out in his excellent book called Prayer. It's a they, didn't, they weren't too creative with the name of that book. It's about prayer. Yeah, that's what he said. If we can't say, thy will be done, or your will be done, from the bottom of our hearts, he says, we will never know any peace. We will feel compelled to try to control people and control our environment and make things the way we believe they ought to be. When we're praying, your will be done, we're praying that, Lord, your will be done no matter what, even if we don't like it. Undergirding all of these three first petitions is this little phrase at the end of verse 10. It says, on earth as it is in heaven. And this phrase gives us a vivid picture about how we should be praying these first three petitions. And the key is to look upward, to set our minds on the things above. Think about it. In heaven, God's name is seen as holy by everyone there. We just, we just sang the song, holy, holy, holy. That's what the living creatures are saying forever and ever. They never stop saying it. In heaven, God's kingdom is fully present. God is on the throne. He reigns unhindered. In heaven, God's will is obeyed fully and perfectly. So in these first three petitions, we are praying that this reality about God's name, about his kingdom, about his will would be increasingly present in our lives and on this earth. This is how Jesus tells us to begin our prayers. It's all about God. It's all about his glory. Notice that none of this first part of the prayer is about us at all. I wonder how many of us, if we're honest, our prayers consist of my will be done and my kingdom come. Jesus tells us to pray in a much different way. It should be very much flipped. Friends, I'm convinced that the reason why so many of us are dry in our prayer lives, the reason why so many of us have no sense of awe or joy as we come to the Lord in prayer is because we have largely neglected this main purpose in prayer, which is to exalt God's name, to pray for his glory to be known. If you are not praying to that end, you are not praying the reason you are created in the first place, the reason why you're on this earth, which is to glorify God. And so, of course, your prayers are going to be dry. Of course, you're going to feel distance when you come to God if you are not lifting up the name of God in this way. So on a very practical level, when you are praying this week, before you talk to the Lord about 
any one of your specific needs. I know they're urgent. I know they are real, and he knows them too. Spend time praising the Lord. Spend time praying for his kingdom to come. Spend time confessing maybe that your heart is not inclined in this way. And see what the Lord unlocks in your heart. Well, that leads us to the second command coming out of this model prayer, and that's to speak up. We had talked about, we begin by speaking up to God. Now we speak out about our own needs and the needs of others, about key aspects of our lives and those around us. So what are those key aspects? Well, in this portion of the prayer, Jesus commands us to pray in a way that helps us to acknowledge our neediness, to acknowledge our sinfulness, and to acknowledge our weakness. So first, we must acknowledge our neediness. Look in verse 11. Jesus tells us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice the focus Jesus wants us to have. He wants us to focus on our needs, not our wants, not our luxuries, our needs, and our needs for today. Not tomorrow, not next week, not five years from now. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, this would have made a lot of sense to a first century context. People who lived in agrarian society, who lived hand to mouth, every day they needed food to live in order to survive. But to many of us today, this kind of command feels out of place. We have enough money, we might say. We have enough resources within us. I know enough people to cover it. Well, Jesus here, he's graciously pointing out the reality that no matter how much you have, no matter the resources you think you have today to meet the needs that are before you, the reality is that we are all completely dependent upon God for everything. You see, Deuteronomy tells us God even gives us the ability to make wealth. God tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. There is nothing, friends, that you have that you have not been given by the Lord, and he can take it away at any time. We are completely dependent upon him. Even every fiber of our being is held together by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're dependent upon him. He wants us to remember that as we pray. Old Housby, in his excellent book on prayer, defines prayer this way. He calls it helplessness. Helplessness. He says only those who are helpless can truly pray. So you want to know why maybe you have a hard time in prayer? It's because of your pride. It's because you don't realize that how dependent you are on the king of heaven. That the only reason you are in the position you are today is because of him. Prideful people do not pray. But the humble will call out to him, regularly. The Lord knows our needs. He knows that we're needy people. So what are your needs today? What are, what are the things burdening your heart? Jesus is saying, pray for those things. He also says, pray for our daily bread. That means we need to know what's going on in the lives of those around us, other believers. We're praying on behalf of others and their needs as well. Well, after pointing out our neediness and having uh, this posture in prayer and our neediness, 
Next, Jesus wants us to address our sinfulness as we pray. Listen to the first part of verse 12. And forgive us our debts. Here, sin is described as a debt. If you've been through college, you likely know what debt is. Or if you have a home, or if you have credit cards that are unpaid, you know what that feels like. Well, sin is a debt. Every sin we commit, every inkling of pride in our hearts, every lustful thought, every evil deed, every way that we've talked bad about someone, every one of those is a debt that we owe to God. And the debt is insurmountable. We cannot pay this debt. Now, if you have never prayed to God for the forgiveness of this debt, you are not forgiven. You are still in debt to God, and the payment for this debt, the Bible says, is death. It's eternal death. It's eternal punishment. It's what the Bible calls hell. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus paid that debt for you on the cross. And so when you ask for his forgiveness and you confess that he is Savior and Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be forgiven that debt and you will be saved forever. You can do that even today. But if you have done that already, and I suspect that many, if not most of us, have done that, if you're a follower of Christ, you may be thinking, well, that's great. Do I still need to confess my sins? Haven't they already been forgiven once for all? And the answer is yes. You still have to regularly confess your sins. Why is that? It's because it's necessary for our souls, and it's necessary to have an intimate relationship with the Lord. Remember how David describes the anguish of unconfessed sin upon his body in Psalm 32. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. The writer of Proverbs describes one particular sin, envy, in this way. He says, envy makes the bones rot. So when we confess our sins, we are we are cleansing this cancer within our souls. Yes, we have been forgiven once and for all, but as we sin, this cancer keeps creeping in and we, we cleanse that cancer. But also remember that prayer is a relationship and when you hurt another person in a relationship, there is distance until you make it right. And that's what happens in our relationship with the Lord when we sin. There's distance. Do you feel far from the Lord right now? I wonder when the last time was you asked for forgiveness for certain sins you have committed this week, this month, this year. You see, whenever we sin, no matter how big or small, we sin against the Lord. Every one of our sins grieves his spirit which dwells within us. And if we keep grieving his spirit, we will feel this distance from him. He's not moved, but there's distance in our relationship. So we need to confess our sins to God regularly to maintain a healthy relationship with the Lord. But it can be hard to confess sins. Maybe we're ignorant about this. We didn't know that God wants us to regularly confess sins. 
But I suspect the real reason why we don't confess our sins is this. I, John Stott pinpoints the reason, I think, and he gets it right in this book, Confess Your Sins. He says the real reason we tend to cover our sins before God is that we want to conceal them even from ourselves. We cannot bear the humiliation of seeing and facing ourselves as we really are. Such is our innate pride that we prefer fiction to fact. We are in love with the fantasy image of ourselves that we have created and refuse to escape from our dreamland. It is sheer vanity, end quote. Well, by way of application, the call here is, if you're not already, is to make a habit of regularly confessing your sins to God. If you're a Christian, the fact that you are forgiven already gives you freedom to confess because you know that he has forgiven and will forgive. You can come with freedom. The cross gives us incredible freedom to lay out our sins as they are. We don't need to pretend before this God. You can confess immediately after you sin or when the Lord brings it to your mind. One way to do this is by praying the prayer from the end of Psalm 139. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you pray that prayer, the Lord will bring situations and people to your mind. He'll bring sins to your mind to confess. Well then, Jesus tells us what must be true of us when we ask for forgiveness. He tells us in the back half of verse 12, it's as we have forgiven our debtors. You see, Jesus takes it for granted that his followers will be people full of forgiveness. He really wants us to get this. How do I know that? It's because it's the only part of the Lord's Prayer that he felt a need to clarify in later verses. If you skip ahead to verse 14, he clarifies in verse, uh, there in verse 14 and 15. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, that sounds like a terrifying verse. What does it mean? What is Jesus saying here? Well, he explains it later in Matthew through a parable when he's talking to Peter about forgiveness. Peter's like, how how often should I forgive? Seven times? That would have been way above and beyond in the first century context. And Jesus says, no, 77 times. There's seven times seven. 70 times seven. There's different versions say different things. Basically, what Jesus is saying, no, you must always forgive. And he tells this story. He tells a parable about a king who is going to settle accounts with his servants. And one of those servants that the king came to, he owed him 10,000 talents. Now that sounds like a lot of money. We don't know what it is. But a talent was 20 years worth of wages. One talent. He owed him 10,000 talents. So just in general $15 an hour work, this man owed the king roughly, in today's terms, $6 billion. $6 billion. And so the man says, you know, I can't, I can't pay that. <laughs> and he pleads for himself and his family, and he says, I'll pay you back. I'll do whatever. And the king, showing pity on him, 
forgives him the debt, and he goes away. Now that man who was just forgiven, that servant, he had another fellow servant who owed him some money, but the other fellow servant owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii is about a third of a year's wages. In today's terms, $15 an hour, that's about twelve, thirteen thousand dollars $13,000. Remember, six billion, thirteen thousand. And the, the servant, the fellow servant, comes to this one who had just been forgiven and said, you know, kind of in the same way he did, the servant did to the king. And he says, you know, I can't pay it, but I'll do my best. Just show me some mercy. I'll, I'll do my best. And this servant, who had just been forgiven $6 billion, said, no, no. And he throws him in jail, which when you're in jail, you can't earn any money. You can't pay back that debt. And, you know, the other servants, they see this, and they're, they're thinking, like, this is not right. So they go and tell the king. And the king comes, and he says this, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that you had, all that your debt you had because you pleaded with me. And should you have not had mercy on your fellow servant who, as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So what is the point that Jesus is making here and in this parable? It's this, in verse 35 of Matthew 18, he says, so also will my heavenly father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Essentially, Jesus is saying that if you are not willing to forgive others what they have done against you, then you are like that wicked servant. He's saying it's an indicator that you are not truly his. You're not truly his. The point is, is that unforgiveness toward others does not characterize a follower of Christ. And so if you are a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian today, you have no right to withhold forgiveness from anyone. Because you have been forgiven a 10,000 talent debt and much greater than that. On the cross, Jesus paid your greatest debt. It was a debt you could never repay. And so you have no right to hold another person under your hand to not forgive them of their little debt. And I know, I know what you're thinking. Well, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know that person who abused me. You don't know that situation. And you're right, I don't. But the Lord does. And he has forgiven you, friend, so much more you are in greater debt to the Lord than anyone who has harmed you. And so you can offer forgiveness. Only when you understand the debt you have been forgiven can you forgive others. And so, self-examination today. Are there people in your life you will not forgive? Are you still holding things against other people, saying, I will never forgive you because of what you did? Well, friend, Jesus says you're in dangerous waters. You may not know him if that is your heart. So by way of application, when we pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, it reflects this commitment to be completely honest with God and confess our sins to him regularly. And 
it reflects a commitment to forgive those who have sinned against us and who will sin against us in the future, no matter what was done to us. Now, I'm not, just a little caveat, I'm not talking about reconciliation, perfect relationship with people. I'm talking about forgiveness, releasing them of that debt. And true forgiveness in the Bible is an event and it's a process. We choose to forgive because God has forgiven us, not because of anything that they have done. We choose to forgive them. And then when it keeps coming up in our minds and hearts, and it will come up if it's a big enough offense, we keep forgiving. And we say, no, I have forgiven that. I will not hold it against them. Friends, if you are holding against someone else, something that they did to you right now, if you're refusing to forgive, you have not forgiven them. You may say, oh, I forgave them long ago. If you're still holding it against them in some way, you haven't done it. So I'd encourage you today to ask God to reveal people whom you need to forgive. And then forgive them from your heart. You know, I did this very thing this week, and I was so surprised. The Lord brought to mind all sorts of people, even from years ago, that I didn't even realize I was holding something against them. I didn't even realize I needed to forgive them. And I did. And there was great freedom in this forgiveness as I forgave them before God. And, and in some ways, you may have to go to that person and ask for forgiveness after you do this with the Lord. Well, true forgiveness is very different for a child of God than it is for a person of this world. If you can't do it, if you won't do it, it's an indicator you may not be a child of God. Well, now we've come to the final petition where we acknowledge our weakness and our need for the Lord's protection. So we've acknowledged our neediness, our sinfulness, and now our weakness. And all of these petitions, do you see what the Lord is doing? He's helping us to see our position before a holy God. We need to focus on him. And when we focus on ourselves, we're still focused on him and his greatness, his majesty. We don't come to God looking down on him and saying, you need to do this to me. We go trembling with open hands saying, please do this for me. Have mercy on me. So in verse 13, Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, your heavenly father knows you he knows your unique temptations towards sin. He knows all the ways that you're tempted to fall. And so he wants you to pray for his protection against temptation every single day. Many of us are so naive about how sin works. We get into situation, we think, how did I get into that? Well, James tells us how sin works in his letter. He tells us that God never tempts anyone. So don't say when you're tempted that God's tempting me. He doesn't tempt anyone. Instead, he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. What Peter calls these deceitful desires within our own hearts. Then desire gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth, brings forth death. Peter, in his letter, says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour do you believe that, Christian? The, the devil is prowling around looking for someone to devour. And if you are not praying for God's protection, you are a vulnerable sheep. 
So friends, do you do this? Do you regularly, daily ask God to lead you not into temptation? As a pastor, I find that most people don't seek to go out and destroy their lives through sin. But I've seen countless people destroy their lives through it. They often drift into it. And what Jesus is saying in this final petition is this. Ask him to keep you from that initial temptation. This word for temptation is the same word for trial. Oftentimes, trials that come into our lives are temptations for sin, are they not? He's saying we don't want to seek out trials. We don't want to seek out temptations. They'll come, but we need to pray, lead us not into temptation. But when we pray in that way, we can count on the promise of 1 Corinthians 10. Hopefully you know this. If not, I would encourage you to memorize it. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we need to fight against future sin through prayer. We need to ask for God's help. And if you're facing a temptation today, ask him to show you the way of escape. When you're faced with any kind of temptation, he will always provide a way out. So there it is. Speak out. Those are three ways, three commands to pray for ourselves, for God's provision, for his forgiveness, and for his help against temptation and evil and the devil. Now, as we close, the question is, well, where do I go from here? Well, if we think about the Lord's Prayer, many of us know it. Many of us have memorized it. Some of us have recited it for years, and it's become background noise in our hearts. The Lord doesn't want it to be background noise. He wants it to be front and center in your life every single day. Now, that doesn't mean you have to pray the exact words of the Lord's Prayer every single day. You can do that. It's always good to pray Scripture. But each one of these petitions are launching points for further prayer. It's a template that God wants us to use. And so when you think about your prayer life, I wonder how many of these six petitions are present. If I were to guess, or not even guess because we did a survey on prayer, most of us focus on that one petition. Give us this day our daily bread. But we're neglecting a lot of the others. He wants us to come to him like this. So take this template with you into the secret place of prayer. Use these categories when you pray. And as you do so, you will grow in the adventure of knowing the Lord through prayer. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're grateful for this, the perfect prayer. As we talk about a subject as personal as prayer, many of us are filled with guilt, shame, condemnation. Lord, we know that for those of us who are your children, there is no condemnation that our debts have been forgiven, that we can come to you with absolute freedom. So Lord, please release those who feel this weight of guilt and shame. Yet at the same time, Lord, if we're honest, we all have ways to grow in praying as you have called us to pray. Lord, if there are people we need to forgive, help us to do that today.
If there are sins we need to confess, help us to do that. If we need to reorient our prayers so that they're focused on you instead of ourselves, please do that among us. Lord, do a mighty movement in each one of our hearts so that we might know the joy of knowing you. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.